Uh, hi, Keith here. Welcome to Rebel Civics. We're doing a live show. Today, I'm going to be joined by attorney Benjamin Schaefer of Goldback. Uh, he's an attorney deeply interested in the com- Constitution. Uh, I met him at the Free State Project Pork Fest in New Hampshire, the Pork Fine Freedom Festival. And uh, we started talking and we pretty soon got well past whether shoulder fired any tank missiles fit in with the Second Amendment. Of course they do. Uh, we started talking about standing armies. Maybe that's not constitutional. So I said, whoa, whoa, this is great. We should do a show on this. So he was on before we talked about Goldback. But today we're going to talk about the Constitution, the authority, limited authority that D.C. is supposed to operate under, but they don't. And I go through some examples. Um, Benjamin is uh, cold on this. I spent about half an hour and I probably came up with enough questions for three shows. Uh, But I'm just going to ask some questions and start off on some topics uh, such as, is the FBI legal and can the federal government really print money? And is the CIA really allowed to overthrow the dictator of another country and install a new one? Anyway, we'll start with some of them. So uh, welcome, Benjamin. Thanks for joining. Yeah, thanks for having me on again. So uh, I'll, I'll start with uh, the first question. I was going to split it. I split my list into kind of external and internal actions that DC mm-hmm. does, because external, at least there's some authority in the Constitution. They are supposed to worry about the external stuff. You know, I think it's interesting. There's kind of two different approaches to the Constitution in general when it comes to whether or not something's constitutional, um, or at least there's two different attitudes, right? There's either the attitude that uh, the Constitution is an empowering document. Um, it might not say everything that we can do, but it, it encourages us to do certain things. And then maybe we can just keep going and do more stuff beyond what it says. And then there's the far more classical view, of course, which is that it's a constraining document. The Constitution says you can only do these specific things, nothing else. You, have, you only are delegated certain specific authorities that are enumerated right here. And if we didn't say it, you can't do it. Right. Um, and and do you consider that a theory? I mean, to me, that's not even a theory. The Constitution expressly delegates, as they said, certain powers. Article one, section eight lists what Congress is allowed to do. That's it. I didn't even I know. Yeah, I, 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 I definitely agree with that viewpoint. <laughs> okay. The Constitution is meant to constrain. The entire purpose mm-hmm. is to constrain. That's why the um, you know, that's why these early American rebels, what were they trying to do? They were basically trying to get us a better Magna Carta. What was the Magna Carta originally? It was a document that says, look, even the king can't do anything he wants. The king has, we're going to list some stuff. The king just can't do. The king has a lane. He's got to stay in his lane. Um, And that's definitely what it is with the Constitution. We created these lanes. Some people call that the division of powers, right, with the uh, legislative, the executive, and the judicial branches, so three branches of government. And the idea is is that they each have a lane. They've got to stay in their lane. Um, Well, one of the ways it was described by one of my constitutional law professors was that everyone was imparted with certain buckets of power. There's a certain like category, in other words, she called that a bucket. And then we'd say, well, what fits in this bucket? What goes with this category? And then, you know, you write out a specific thing that a legislature can do and you put that in the legislature's bucket of power. Okay, this is a specific role, one specific thing that's delegated to you. And so you have to keep it within that one category and pull out these specific things and say, okay, this is something I'm specifically allowed to do. And then, and then you do that. And if it's not written on, if it's not written down in the constitution into that bucket of power, 
It's not yours. So, so this was a constitutional law class with, that was actually about the Constitution, not what yeah, yeah, you know, I traditionally hear constitutional law is, is about Supreme Court interpretations, the 3,000-page book of Supreme Court decisions, <laughs> opinion, uh, and they don't, could care less about what the Constitution says. If, if anything, they might try to try to twist the words around, redefine well, I went what to the commerce University means. Of Arizona, College okay. of Law. Um, and that's in Tucson, Arizona. And I really mm. believe that, um, gee, as I was as I was in that class, I was blown away by how libertarian and how much it was about freedom, how much it was about constitution. I thought to myself, how can any lawyer go to law school and not come out a libertarian? Um, I think at it the depends time? where you go to. That's good it to hear. I didn't know about that school. But I guess I'm not surprised Arizona would be that way. Um, but most yeah, I mean, Arizona is pretty good <laughs> for that kind of um, thing, right? So. You know, I spent most of my life in New Jersey. The, the few attorneys that I had met that studied the Constitution, uh, by the time I was 25, I could argue circles around them. Um, <laughs> you know, and, I and, do think, though, that there were still <laughs> there were still some basic, you know, little pink commies or something uh, that went to law school with me. And they just kind of were like, ah, grumble, grumble, grumble. Um, okay, so fine. The Constitution doesn't give them the power to do it, but who's going to stop us, you know? Who's going to, well, that, that's a different attitude. At least somebody that says who's going to stop us is just openly admitting they don't care what it says anymore. That's right. a little easier to deal with, actually. They're being honest <laughs> than, than pretending <laughs> right. that the Commerce Clause gives Congress the power to decide you're not allowed to grow marijuana in your own backyard for your own medical use or something. Right. That that, that affects interstate commerce, right? That's their. Right. Yeah. Of course, that, that's the fun yeah. joke with the Interstate <clears throat> Commerce Clause was. Think of anything, any imaginable thing, and see if the Interstate Commerce Clause can be used to prohibit it. Doesn't matter what it is. Um, it doesn't have to. I mean, growing and buying and selling things. My goodness, that's an easy leap. Um, I'm, uh, interstate commerce could reach to almost anything. And then, well, actually, unfortunately, um, and it's a fortunate thing, there are some Supreme Court cases. Because yes, we still study a lot of Supreme Court cases, where they're pointing out that maybe there are limits to the uh, Interstate Commerce Clause to literally blanket any imaginable thing. Um, this is, there are a few Supreme Court decisions that push it back against that, whereas it seemed like for decades, for, you know, for a century, over the last century, that Interstate Commerce could be used to justify literally anything. You know, yeah, thought yeah, and it, and, and it still is. Yeah, thought still is, could no, be commerce. Yeah. The, the example, I just for people who aren't familiar with it, it's the, I think it's Rake case. Um, that's, that's a follow on from the famous wheat case where the, that started the interstate commerce abuse. But yeah, someone in California that was in a state where medical marijuana is legal, growing marijuana in her backyard or in her basement for her own medical use, small amounts. Uh, they said that that's illegal under federal law, under the Commerce Clause, because if she didn't grow it in the backyard for her own use, then she might have bought it on the market and she might have bought it on the market interstate. It could have come from interstate. Therefore, her growing three pot pants in her backyard affects interstate commerce and Congress can make it illegal. <laughs> that's ludicrous. Right. The argument is ludicrous. And to hear the Supreme Court like affirm that is and that's the literally the same mind. argument <laughs> uh, you know i wish i was better at remembering the names of every case that's basically one of the arguments that was made about uh, a case where a farmer grew some grain and had it in a silo and was using it on his own farm as feed he had a bunch of corn feed yeah. um for pigs that was I used believe. as a precedent in the wheat case i don't remember the name of that either but the i always yeah. just call it the wheat case 
Oh, right. It's, that's it's like, like standard... you, got a little extra, you got a little extra coin. You, you literally grew something. It's never even left your own property, let alone never left this property, let yeah. alone really entered commerce at all. But they're like, but There's it no might money have change an effect hands. on commerce, which might have an effect on interstate commerce, commerce. which means the feds can do whatever they want. Yeah. One of the questions, Ridiculous. since we were already on this, um, and, and I knew this was going to be a free range discussion because uh, from our interaction at Porkfest. Yeah, <laughs> um, sorry. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. That's fine. Like I said, I got enough, like I said in the intro, I got enough questions here to, to do three shows with you, at least, I bet. Mm -hmm. But um, the the I did was going to bring, I'll switch and do internal first, um, which basically the federal government has no authority in constitutionally. Um, and just to close out our initial discussion, uh, regular watchers of my show are, should most are, and any that aren't, aren't listening, they're already aware that I'm taking the Jeffersonian position. Like the, the, the constitution from the founder's view limits what the federal government can do. Uh, the 10th amendment, I consider the most important one. If it's not listed as a delegated power, then it's the States or the people. So that's I'm even starting from there. And I'm glad you brought it up because I would have forgot to even mention that. <laughs> like, yeah, that's where I'm starting from. Everything <laughs> else I just I just brush off. And, and I do. I have gotten into some debates with with attorneys on the Constitution. I'm glad to find out about Arizona. I really only know fairly well one other attorney, um, maybe two. But uh, one of them went to Chicago School of Law, which I've heard is pretty good. Oh, that yeah, way. for the Constitution, um, that's somewhat famous good, for that. He's good. He's really good. I learned a lot from him. Um, and he laughs at my typical uh, response sometimes because there's plenty of attorneys around. <laughs> um, I run into one and we start talking and I just say, no, that's not true. And they start telling me about their constitutional law class. And I usually say, well, you have to realize that I have a big advantage over you. And they're like, well, where did you get your law degree? I said, that's my advantage. I can just read the Constitution. It takes like an hour. I read English fine. <laughs> I went to college. I mean, my degree is engineering, but that don't matter. Right. I can read. It but takes then, an hour but, to read but it. But then your, your interpretation I, I isn't clouded by all these other interpretations, right? Right. I don't have like four years of law school to overcome. That takes years <laughs> and years of reading, you know, before you can get rid of all that. Bring up, right. uh, I think it was Elena K Dean Kagan of um at harvard law school that got that made the constitution class optional for freshman law students <laughs> like you can you can get a degree you can get a law degree from harvard and never have read the constitution ever in your life like there's no need to do that you can get a constitutional law degree from harvard without yeah. ever having read it because they don't teach that they teach the the court opinion so Anyway, I tell people that it's a joke, but it's actually kind of true. <laughs> and the couple times I think you you get it, right? Um, you know, uh, you what's, what's a constitutional it? law class? Uh, if you're, let's say, you're reading the court <clears throat> opinion, okay? Even if you agree with that court opinion, interpreting the constitution, they're still interpreting the constitution. You've got to have a constitution handy so that you can at least be and like, okay, so that's what they think about this. They should, but they don't. Yeah, they often don't. And, you know, I knew a couple people that went to college in New Jersey. Like, no, they don't, you don't need to know it. They know pieces of it. Like you say, the Commerce Clause, they can quote it off the top of their head. And then they mm -hmm. could, then they'll talk about the wheat base. 
Or the right yeah, you know, I had a um, what the commerce means or so I was going to ask you the question. So here's one of the questions I had listed. I'll probably okay. only get the two of these 25 questions, but um, I did a show uh, recently and I got into the Department of Education, um, which is and, and I, I often argue that to people that are trying to fix a school like, well, let's get rid of the Department of Education and fire everybody. And if we don't do that, like, I don't think you can fix the schools. You got to get that whole flow, those, you know, 44,000 people or whatever it is and, and all their money. You got to end all that. So when I, when I did that, I did some research and think like, why do they even think the Department of Education is lawful, like constitutional? Guess what? It's the Commerce Clause. They say that because of the Commerce Clause, the Department of Education can exist. What do you think of that? That was one of the questions I was going to ask. I don't even, well, that's a stretch. <laughs> I, I think that the it is a stretch, but really what it comes down to is the constitutionality of the entire administrative state, right? Um, there's it comes down to the New Deal and stuff like that. About a hundred years ago, there was this this question like uh, the federal government in the Constitution doesn't have the right to create a fourth branch of government, and and it's generally called the fourth branch, which is this huge administrative um, you know, state. You've got uh, the CFRs, the Code of Federal Regulations. So they're creating a form of law. You've got the um, all these administrative agencies that are supposed to do something and take action in the United States. And it's like, well, where did any of that come from? Literally, none of that is mentioned in the Constitution. There's no Department of Education established by the Constitution. Okay, there's no there's no DEA. There's no ATF. There's no all kinds of things. A three, all, your various three letter agencies, um, the Department of Homeland Security. Um, most of these departments and whatnot, they they have no basis whatsoever in the Constitution. Um, now that doesn't mean to say that uh, the early founding fathers didn't see some value in. Um, having more than one employee in the executive branch, right? Um, there were some secretaries of this and that that uh, were established by George Washington uh, so that he could have people who would help him out um, in using that executive power. Um, but what, we, what it's turned into is just so huge. It's so bizarre. And, and yeah, there really is no constitutional authority for any of it. And what it really comes down to is that... Um, the Supreme Court, again, you're just complaining about the Supreme Court's interpretations. The Supreme Court basically decided in the 1930s, we have to do something to save the New Deal because there was huge political will for it at the time. Uh, there was a bunch. And of course, there were several judges um, that were just not going along because they were saying, OK, FDR, where's your authority to create this agency? Where's your authority to create all of this stuff and hire all these people to, to mess with people's lives in ways that you don't even have the authority to do. Um, and FDR then, um, he was saying, well, if you guys on the Supreme Court, if you won't delegate me the authority by the judicial branch just saying, well, I, I we're going to find it between the lines in the Constitution somewhere to let you have the power to do all this stuff, then I'm going to appoint a bunch more Supreme Court justices. Because uh, another thing it doesn't say in the Constitution is it doesn't say nine justices will sit on the Supreme Court, um, creating an odd number, and therefore you need at least five out of nine to agree with you. These are these are conventions we've come up with on our own since the Constitution. 
He said, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to pad the Supreme Court. I'm going to make it so there's 27 justices. And then I'm, and I'm going to make sure that I have this litmus test before I appoint these new justices. I'm going to say, do you support my plan? Do you think the executive branch has carte blanche authority to just create new laws, create new agencies, hire all these people, um, create new rules? Uh, if, you, if you say no to that, then I won't appoint you. And then I'm, I'll have 27 uh, and then I'll have 27 total justices and only five or six that are going to vote against me. <clears throat> or even if all nine of the original nine have voted against me, that, that wouldn't have been the case, historically speaking. But even if all nine of the originals voted against me, I would still win a majority of the <clears throat> Supreme Court justices would be on my side and then I'd be able to do whatever I want. Um, and, and the Senate, you thought the Senate would go along with it, right? The Senate would have to go along, right? To confirm well, and that's it. the thing, too, is there was a great deal of political will at the time. The Senate would have gone along. Um, and um, they generally knew it. So this is um, <clears throat> this is what colloquially got called the switching time that saved nine, uh, which is just kind of this quip that they came up with. Um, but basically, um, Owen Roberts, not the same Roberts we have now, of course, that was 100 years ago, um, in the Parrish case, um, Justice Roberts um, decided to switch. He said he was basically one of the justices saying, I'm uh, all this administrative stuff. There's no constitutional basis for it. Um, I don't uh, think that the, we, you have the power to do these things. Um, and uh, he changed his opinion and voted in favor of what FDR wanted. And then that basically took the pressure off of um, the uh, FDR using the Senate to create additional justices to get his way. Because it was like, okay, well, the Supreme Court is going to let FDR have his way now. Um, so, so he was just – he maybe even if he didn't want to do that, he thought that was better than the alternative. He thought that was better than the alternative. He figured, look, if – if I don't save a nine justice Supreme court, then, then we basically lose all of our moral authority as, as a Supreme court to really try to interpret anything because then the political branch will just uh, do whatever the heck they want to change the court's rules, to change the court's numbers. Um, so that really we have no say at all. By installing basically politician activists, Justices, Activist politicians just, to become justices, in which case, policy. then would we have a third branch of government? Would we have any impartiality? No, we wouldn't. All, all pretense of that, which I know some people, of course, some of your listeners probably don't believe exists anyway at this point because it seems to yeah. have become so political. But his, his thought was, look, if I compromise and become tiny bit political for just a couple of cases, I'll retain my general overall moral authority. I'll change my, uh, retain my general overall um, ability to actually have an impartial judiciary. But of course, that's not how it works, is it? And, and the change uh, one little vote. Beliefs, but I think that whenever you start compromising your moral authority, it's death by a thousand cuts. A little yeah. compromise. A little compromise for the New Deal. like Right. A little compromise for the New Deal steps. devastates, <laughs> devastates your moral yeah. authority to ever come back <clears throat> and really have a, any say that matters ever again. You just can't compromise on principle. If there's a principle that's being violated, you have to stand firm on it or there are no principles. Mm -hmm. You kind of, um, you get rid of, you step over, you compromise, you step over that fence 
and you find out that it's really, really, really hard or impossible to establish a new line again in the sand where you can say, yes, I have integrity again. It's like, no, you've already already seceded the moral high ground. Like yeah, as already, soon as you seed, it's done. Uh, the moral high ground You're on done. principle, you don't regain it. You can't, you can't come back, and that's what they did. Mm-hmm. So that's what we did. No, I never knew that story. Uh, we still have nine. That, that's that's interesting. That's but yeah, it's just tradition. Nine. It doesn't say anything about nine. the The only thing it says is you have to have a chief justice. So they could have one. <laughs> right, right. Um, Chris Ann Hall. Do you remember with uh, former prosecutor Chris Ann Hall? She's she does education on constitutional stuff. Anyway, she she uh, has used the argument that I've copied often like she'll say well as far as the authority goes like if you really want to limit the uh bad behavior like kind of cut down on all this mischief the supreme court and the federal court system does Mm -hmm. then shut down all the district courts all of them all the appeals courts all the district courts cut the supreme court down to one chief justice put them in the basement of congress with a card table and a candle and a folding chair and and that'll just cut down this problem and that's constitutional. And that's a it's good idea. constitutional. Um, <laughs> that's a good idea. But I would be concerned. Well, the the uh, yeah, and she's. I would be joking. concerned because she's joking because in a way. The, but she's the the point of that is to show that Congress does have authority here. They complain about the Supreme Court and the appeals courts and the federal district courts. They're established by Congress, right? The Constitution says Congress may establish. Uh, lower courts from time to time as they see fit or something, something right. like that. I forget the wording. Um, now, they have control. I would push back, though, that I think that's a terrible idea, unfortunately. I think it is a terrible idea, but it's it's an exaggeration to make the point. Go ahead yeah. and push back. Just because something's constitutional doesn't always mean it's a good idea, okay? So just because you have the power doesn't mean you should use that power in an irresponsible way. Um, and uh, maybe it's because I'm a lawyer, but I do believe that courts in general are a force for good. Courts are supposed to protect our rights. If uh, let's say they, let's say the, this massive over bloated executive branch decides they want to hire million, two million enforcers who are going to go out there and, and brutally terrorize people in the most authoritative authoritarian unconstitutional manner. You know, let's say they just decide that they're going to make up some kind of horrible draconian um, regulation that they're going to enforce on every human being with with absolute brutality. Who's going to stop them? Usually, it's the I think the states, them. if it gets to that point, the states have to stop it. I don't think the federal courts can or will stop it, because by the time the executive branch gets to that point, the um, the court system is all on board. That's what I think would happen to push back well, on your and, pushback. And in many cases, the courts are on board with things that I disagree with. But but let's say you have it. But this comes down to and here's some constitutional language for you. It's about redress of grievances. You've got a grievance. You've been harmed. You've been damaged. You need to have somebody you can go to and say, hey, this isn't OK. I want redress. I want to be treated fairly. This isn't right. And that's that's that that is at least theoretically. That is the purpose of courts. Purpose of courts is to be able to say, hey, something here isn't right. Someone's been hurt. Someone's aggrieved. We need to do something about this. We need to say, hey, you've got to stop that. Um, or you have to fix mm-hmm. this. Right? That's the purpose of courts. And 
And really, uh, just because you don't always get justice in our current system doesn't mean we should give up on the concept of justice. It just means we need more justice, in my opinion. Um, and that's really the purpose of a court. And that's why so, we have things like bankruptcy court, for example, established in the Constitution that we need to have a bankruptcy court. Well, those are state courts, right? Um um, um, yeah, I want to restrict this. But in the, you know, in the U.S. Constitution, it says that bankruptcy is how we're going to deal with debt because they were sick and tired of bankruptcy being used to enslave people under the British system. Oh, so that goes to a federal court? I've never declared bankruptcy. Yeah. <laughs> so that that would go to a federal court if you declare bankruptcy. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't know that. But, um, and um, and so yeah, bankruptcy <clears throat> courts are separate from other courts because they're actually constitutional courts. They're mandated in the Constitution. We have, uh, I'm going to read it because uh, I actually don't know how it came in. Something called a super sticker. So I guess it's not from YouTube, but I can see the comments from the various stream links. So <laughs> it's a funny What's name, a justifi justifiably stupid. I don't know. But we got some money from a super sticker. So that's somebody helping keep, the, keep the lights on, keep the servers running. That uh, um, I work for free, that's for sure. And we're definitely not paying Benjamin. <laughs> um, but yeah, it does cost money to do this. Uh, so thank you. Just a question, though. What's the best concept to summarize the Constitution? Federalism, separation of powers, federation of states. Yes. I think it's, yeah, can all three? Is that an acceptable answer? <laughs> it's not an or question. It, um, right. Um, federalism, I, federalism, the concept that the federal government and the state governments are separate. Right. And the federal right. government has certain powers and states have the rest. Right. Separation so of powers. That's about the three bands. Go ahead. Yeah. You know, I, I, I had this discussion with a guy from France and I was like, so what makes the European Union not a country? You know, this looks like they're just recreating federalism to me. It's got all the branches. It's got all these different functions of government over its members. The members have local control like our states do. Um, but it doesn't, um, but, you know, you've still got this larger body that this federation, this federalism over the top of it. Why is it that um, we still say that France is a country and not a, you know, a constituent part of the European Union, for example? And we had this little debate about how he's like, well, you know, we don't think of it that way and we don't want it to be that way. And yeah, we know that Americans did this thing. And as we discuss the history of it and the different perspectives, I think what it really comes down to is they haven't had a civil war yet over it in Europe. And that was really their choice at Brexit. Do we fight a civil war about secession or do we let them go? And if we let them go, then we really aren't a country. Um, and if we force them to stay, then really there are no constituent countries within a larger union. It is one country that has constituent parts. And, and, that's, and that's really what happened he, is that's how we settled it was the civil war. That's how he kind of decided, or that's how he thinks of the EU then the difference. Well, the, right. well, the, it's like in, the UN or something like that. You can be a mm -hmm. member state, but you're still a country and they're just an organization you're a member of, you know, but, but the I analogy that, is, go ahead. I think so that I was that's say, really, the analogy the is good. Was right. That, the constitution that was written it is a union. That. Sorry. No, no, that's all right. Um, we're, we're, yeah, there's a little bit of delay here. So um, 
between when we both talk. So sorry about that for people watching. Sometimes uh, it takes a second before I hear what he's saying. So, um, but I, if he thinks about that, and I and I suspect a lot of people in England do, or in in EU do, um, but the people in England uh, voted to leave with pretty high margin, and it was uh, around an eighty percent turnout. If I remember the number right, I think it was eighty percent. Um, don't quote me on the number, but it was about that. Uh, overwhelmingly in favor, like it, it wasn't a super close. And in the EU, when they wrote the original, it's their federalism set up, when they wrote their constitutional document for the EU, uh, they those guys remembered about the Civil War problem in the U.S., and they put a provision in. So there's a whole section about how you leave and it's a two year process. And yet the country has to vote and the vote has to be done a certain way. And they included a specific process to leave. And if the founders in 1787 had done that, like, I, I you know, from what I can tell and read, uh, it didn't occur to them that they would even need to do that. Of course, a state could leave like it was openly talked about within a right. year or two of ratifying the constitution. Like, and there was a question whether it was even going to be ratified enough to even form the union. So of course a state could leave. They didn't even, that's my view. I, you know, I don't know for sure, but I think in general, most or all the founders didn't even occur to them to write down a Brexit type process for state because they were, they had no problem. A state would leave. Uh, I, I know in at least three of the state ratifying conventions, there's specific language about leaving the union if something happens. Like when they ratified it, Virginia's one, I think Massachusetts is another, I forget the third one, it might be Pennsylvania. Like if, if the state decides to leave, like that is in their ratifying agreement that they can leave. And, you know, I've got a few uh, friends here in New Hampshire. I'm in New Hampshire right now on another goldback trip uh, to establish cool. more, uh, more constitutional money in the state of New Hampshire. And there's a lot of people here who actually have some really fun arguments about how New Hampshire was established really as an independent country in 1772 with the Pine Tree Rebellion. At least some of them want to claim that and say, uh, you know, really, um, we have the right to leave. Because, um, and maybe we should get rid of the feds. Maybe we should stand up to them and, and secede. Now, that is a very minority view here in New Hampshire, but there actually um, was a bill. It didn't make it out of committee, I think, so it didn't get voted on in the state legislature, but there was a bill to secede from the union in New Hampshire. Uh, and it went it went to the state legislature. Yeah, in yeah, the state I, legislature, I, though, it didn't make it out of the state legislature <clears throat> committees. I don't. There wasn't a general vote. I had a, yeah. Okay. So it didn't get past the committee. I had a very interesting uh, conversation with one of the co-sponsors in Porkfest this year, um, yeah. state legislature. Uh, and also the guy, uh, one of the guys from Maine, they were trying okay. to get it onto the floor in Maine. Um, and uh, what I, what I tell them is, look, if you could get not just New Hampshire, but New Hampshire and Maine, and I think this would be key, New Brunswick, in Canada to all form one new union and say, we are going to be a separate country. Um, and then who knows, maybe you could get Prince Edward Island and Nova Scotia to join them. Um, if they could get something like that going on, um, I think that they would have a decent shot because Canada already has a general view that um, the Canadian Supreme court actually had this question come up. Can, uh, can uh, Quebec leave the union? Cause Quebec votes on independence from time to time. 
And their basic um, rule, uh, the Canadian Supreme Court was, you can't use violence to keep them in. If they try to leave, we're not saying that they have the right to leave, but you can't use violence to, to force them to stay. Um, it's going to look it, pretty bad if the Canadian government says, we're going to recognize this union of New Hampshire, Maine, New Brunswick, and maybe a couple of others to be independent. But we're going to, um, but then the U.S., decides to use violence, right? That wouldn't, that wouldn't fly. They'd have to negotiate, I think, if they were to create a union that was larger like that. Yeah, I'll, um, I just want to tell, somebody asked another question, I'll ask it in a minute when we finish this topic. But, uh, you know, it, it seems pretty well understood in Canada, or at least in Quebec, in general, that they do have the authority to vote, to leave. Right. Like that's acceptable. And they've held the election. Canada, which is even more tyrannical than the U.S. <laughs> um, well, maybe the Canadian Supreme Court true, did oh, not but. say it was a constitutional vote. They, they said maybe this isn't a constitutional <clears throat> vote, but you can't use violence to force them to stay if they do. Like, you can't. Yeah, they would. So if Quebec did vote, um, maybe that could happen. They could happen. Right. And procedurally, the way the U.S. Constitution is is written, the states like New Hampshire would have to secede from the union, form its own country, and then it could join with another state if it wanted. Right. Yeah, it would have to be done in two steps to be legal. That's my understanding. You agree with that? That's my understanding of how it would have to work with the U.S. Constitution. Um, they, they can't they can't decide as a state because a state cannot make a treaty with Quebec. That's unconstitutional. Right. Except that I think that I would argue that even if it is two steps, those steps can be pretty simultaneous. The moment you are have seceded from the union and if you and you are de facto an independent entity, then it's nobody else's business what that independent entity does because that independent entity is independent. They can do what they choose. It it could be it could be done as a single vote, but it would have to be done in each state separately. Um, right. And, and I'm counting Quebec as a state. Right. I'm using the word right. state in the sense the founders used, which is, you know, Virginia is a state and England's a state and Quebec's a state. Um, right. But but constitutionally, the way Canada works, Quebec is a province. It's not it's not really the same. Right. So they've got um, a but, whole different. But even region. then they let it they would let it go, I think. Um, and, and I've had, you know, I, th- I think people I've talked to some of my relatives I've never lived there, but actually my last name is Bassett. My family's from Quebec City. So my heritage is Quebec, actually, even though it's two generations back and I don't speak French at all. <laughs> um, Bordeaux, I can say. Um, but but um, I've heard people talking about it and like it's accepted if Quebec did vote. Now, most people think there's too many socialists in Quebec that want money from Ottawa, right so from the larger, <laughs> it'll never pass. It's like Puerto, R- like hope in Puerto Rico will finally vote to become a state <laughs> or leave and be its own right. country, like one or the other. Shit or get off the pot is what I think on that one. <laughs> but um, so that that's why I think it should it should happen because, as you said about principle, mm-hmm. uh, secession is constitutional. Leaving the union is constitutional for a U.S. state. And I would want to stick with it perfect and say, okay, we're going to leave. And even if it's done in one vote, we're going to leave, see who else leaves. Quebec would have to vote on the same day and Maine on the same day. I don't know if New Hampshire people would want to be part of Maine, though. 
<laughs> part of the they don't problem. have to be part of Maine. They, they can remain separate. They can remain in separate uh, entities under a larger, um, a, new a, uh, federalized system, perhaps. Yeah. So. Uh, Texas is a good secession argument because um, you don't have to get into this. I have to look up the story about the pine. Would you call it the pine tree rebellion? Pine Tree Rebellion is one of my favorite stories. And actually, on their uh, state constitutional money, the, the, the gold back, the 50, actually depicts the Pine Tree Rebellion. Wow. I gotta, you got to tell me more about that. Um, let me, let me ask this. Yeah. And it says an appeal to God or an appeal to heaven because they decided they could no longer appeal to the king for justice. So they were, they were appealing to the almighty. Um, yep, the Almighty rather than the King. So, which if the people are religious, I'm not religious, but for religious people, that's a good argument. You say because God there's is a higher authority the than the King. We don't need to follow. Yes, that you king. say there's He's a violating. higher authority than the King. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let me read this question. Uh, oh, and thanks again for uh, got ten bucks from Justifiably Stupid. More Beverly. Here we, here we go. We'll produce two more shows. Okay. Uh, the question is, what is civil rights in relation to the Constitution? I know it inspired amendments, but does it supersede only parts of it, any parts of it? Biden wants to be remembered as the civil rights president, in my opinion. Now, that's funny, <laughs> the last thing. But um, anyway, what is civil rights in relation to the Constitution? Go. It's tricky. This is a tricky one. So I think what it really comes down to is when we say rights, there's two different ways people think about it. There's negative rights and there's positive rights. Negative rights are statements about what the government cannot do. Positive rights would be about you being entitled to something. Um, our constitution is only about negative rights. There are only negative rights in the constitution. Negative rights uh, mean constraints on government. So, for example, um, the in the Bill of Rights, um, it talks about um, Congress shall make no law. In other words, Congress does not have the power to make a law if it touches on these things, if it does certain things. Right. And so it's not about saying people shall be entitled to do whatever they want. It's that Congress can't stop them. And, and, so it, and it's a power. Negative rights. So, so it's a negative, right? It's like a negative power. Would you phrase it as a negative power? It's like a negative power. Yeah. Power. You yeah. specifically so do right, not have power over this. So the right, like freedom of the press, for example, is a right. right. So the people have the right of freedom of the press. And the First Amendment, uh, you know, the way I phrase it, uh, it's a reminder that the right exists. So, right. Like, and as so far as often, civil though, rights, we think of it in terms of positive rights, right? <clears throat> like I have a right to um to report i have a right to the press i have the right to um to assembly and so i think of it as being like i it's have the right, right but the way as a positive right and maybe i do but the constitution isn't written that way the way the constitution is written is saying congress cannot abridge it congress cannot interfere they, they yeah it's a negative power so the civil right I guess it would say, and this this could be a phrasing thing. Like I never refer to right. The government has no rights. Only people have rights. So I say, well, right. Congress has a power. So it's a negative power. And so yet, I'm not sure if I'm phrasing this correctly, but like I would, and this is my terms that I'm using here. But I would say like the civil right, if you want to call it that, like freedom of speech. That's a right that people have. The negative authority is that Congress has no 
power, was not delegated a power to infringe on that in any way. The right Correct. to keep and bear arms. Um, same question. Same thing. And which is interesting one, too, because that delegates a lot of authority to the states um, is what it primarily does. Um, whereas, you know, freedoms of speech and so forth are delegated more to the people. But um, but yeah, so uh, but his, this is the big question of civil rights. OK, is that when we think about the Civil Rights Act. OK, and we think about civil rights. Originally, that term civil rights was about these negative powers, about these negative rights negative. that no one could interfere <laughs> with it. Therefore, you in your civil life, you're simply empowered to do whatever you're going to do. The Civil Rights Act kind of took more of a positive rights view that because <clears throat> you have dignity as a person. And this is how Ogerbefell was decided too was this idea of the, the dignity of the person, the independence of and, and powers within a, within a person means that you're entitled to have to certain things. And, and um, that was Overfeld as the uh, uh, marriage case. Yes, Ogerbefell is the marriage case. Sex um, marriage case for same-sex uh, marriage. marriage. Same-sex marriage, yes. Uh -huh. Just for people that don't know the name. Um, yeah, that that's like, yeah, that's bogus. That's a bogus Supreme Court. That's a funny <laughs> one to read. Like, you can't tell us that. <laughs> like Congress, if you tried to present mm -hmm. that to Thomas Jefferson, that that taxpayers were going to pay the Supreme Court to decide what marriage is, he would have been like, what? <laughs> we screwed up what? somewhere. I mean, what do you mean? Where do we screw that up? <laughs> I don't know. We need to write that one down. Like, no. <laughs> yeah. The, the, Actually, the, the, I think most of those guys things. would say marriage is, again, I'm an atheist, but people would say, religious people would say marriage is between the you and God, right? Like that's not right. a state. Well, how did the government get involved anyway from a constitutional perspective, right? Because there was no such thing <clears> as marriage licenses at all. The government literally had no role whatsoever under, uh, during the times of the Constitution was written. No, not even the local government. Um, not even the local government. Let, nobody, let alone nobody the federal government. It wasn't the government's that's, business. No, marriage is – and I still don't consider it the government's business, although I – did get a marriage license at one time. Um, ah, see, you know, this is one of the things that so I often I went say, along. I went along. This is one. Of, this this is exactly what I usually say: is stop delegating them powers they don't have. Just don't play along. Um, I've I, I've gotten myself in trouble for this with a few people um, by expressing this opinion and making people feel uh, like, hey, uh, the, the, you know, they didn't they didn't like my attitude. But really, especially when it comes to marriage, don't just don't get a license. You can have yeah. a huge, beautiful ceremony. You can have a religious belief about it. You can have a non-religious belief about it. You can have a party with your friends and family. You can kiss under a canopy. You can share a glass of wine. You can do all kinds of things. Nowhere in any of that does it require you to involve the state. So just don't. Like, there's no reason for you to choose to involve the state when you don't need to. So, yeah, my advice to couples getting married is just don't invite them. Just don't yeah, get the I license. I wouldn't do it again. Um, yeah. I'm no longer married, and that was also state approved. <laughs> but um, right. yeah, uh, so I guess there's always the well been there, done that thing. So, but right. just say I did it again. I do happen to live but, with an awesome girl. Maybe it could happen. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but but yeah, you, civil rights. you remember Renata. Right? But so if I did it again, uh, that's mm -hmm. a good argument. Like, why would we involve the state? Uh, I don't want to invite them. I don't. So I don't need to gonna... invite them. We don't need to change names. 
Uh, when I got married, actually, before you can do my, that, though. my wife without the marriage license, you can still oh, go in front of court and say, I want to change my name. When, when I got married, my, my wife was also an engineer who had started her career and, and, and she didn't change her name. It was, we talked about it. She said she would, if we wanted to, but like, no, we were, you know, late twenties at the time. And, and it's, it's like, it's almost like it's too late and we didn't have children. So that would be one reason to do it. I think I would do it for that reason. Yeah. That would be a key reason. Oh, to but do again, it. you can do that. But um, you can do that anyway. Every... Good point. Pretty much every power that um, mm -hmm. is done by statute can be done by contract. And that's a free exchange between free mm -hmm. people is to create a contract rather than have it imposed by some statute. Um, but, you know, when it comes to civil rights, I think this is really the hard question is, do you believe in positive rights or not? And if you don't believe in positive rights, if you believe that negative rights are the only thing that the government can do, which is stay out of your business. Negative power? I wanted, I wanted to make sure I understand what you mean. Neg what I call negative powers. Yeah, like negative powers. Okay. If that's the kind of rights you believe in is that the government simply has negative powers that they can't infringe and, and that you have freedom. You have positive then, rights. Um, then that's the more constitutional view, frankly. Um, is, but the much more popular view now, it's becoming very popular, is this idea of positive rights, that you're entitled to certain treatment. Um, yeah, like you have a right to education, you have a right sure. to housing, um, you right have, to housing, uh, right to healthcare, things like I, that. I, I oft, I usually will push back. People start talking about women's rights, gay rights, uh, you know, all, all kinds of stuff. And I say, well, if you have to put a word in front of it, then you already know you're not talking about a right. Like, there's no such thing as women's rights. There can't be. It's impossible. You're talking about positive rights then because you're talking about entitlement. So that's a good way to put it. Rights. I didn't I never I didn't know the wording for that. But yeah, so that's the way I always put it is like no, you can't if if it's a if it's a thing that you're calling a right, but it's limited to this group like women or homosexuals or something, like no. You're not talking about a right then because either everybody has it or it's not a right. There's, exactly, there's only two yeah. possibilities. So that's what I mean. It, and I don't hate women, although that's what will happen if you say that on Twitter. If you um, say there's no such thing as women's you, rights, you, they're going to be like, oh, so you want to enslave you, women or something. Yeah, and I know all you Trump voters hate women. Like, well, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> but that's that's the response you'll get. You know, How much money yeah. did you donate to the Trump campaign? None. <laughs> none. <laughs> Actually, none <laughs> is the answer. <laughs> Sometimes I'll string people along and then say, I didn't vote for Trump either time. <laughs> and it often throws people for a loop. But anyway, because right. um, I'm making a point about rights or constitution well, people, or, people or something. People think that everything has to be a dichotomy. It's either Democrat or Republican. It's either you're on my side or you're not on my side. You're in or you're out. You're you're us or you're them. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that kind of thinking is just um, – it's myopic and it's dangerous. Yeah. You know? So so my – like I said, maybe I'll get you back for another episode in a couple months. Um <laughs> I think I only asked one of about 20 questions here. Um, really? Sorry. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I didn't know where this was going to go. And and I didn't, you know, th this preparing for an episode like this, I knew I'd, it's like th the theory is, okay, I'm going to sit down. You know, I, I spent maybe half an hour and, and like came back this morning and spent 15 more minutes and wrote a couple more things. I'm like, well, did I prepare enough? It's like, I'm kind of prepared for my whole life for <laughs> these questions have been building so and questions. thinking about them. Um, but the internal, so we, we talked quite a bit about the internal. So 
I agree with you. Most of the agency things, the, the FBI, Department of Education, like the FBI, does the federal government have authority to have a police force that operates within each state doing police actions? Police powers are ex- explicitly delegated to the states. Police powers belong to the states, not the federal government. So there really shouldn't be federal police. Every, the everything the FBI does is unconstitutional by definition. Right? Yeah. Well, and, and don't forget, it wasn't until J. Edgar Hoover we even had an FBI. Yeah. Right? It's not like um, a lot of times we think that certain fixtures, just because we've gotten used to them, are the way everything has to be. And if you if you pull that card out, the whole house of cards will come falling down. It's essential. It's a foundation of our society. And it's like, no, it's not. I mean, like, I, heck, I'm not even very old yet, and yet I'm older than credit scores. Credit scores didn't used to be a thing. Well, we could abolish that, and the entire system wouldn't fall apart. Yeah. we're all, a, a lot of these things that people think have been around forever, I'm older than the Department of Education. Like, people right? got so, educated before the Department of Education. <laughs> Like, I, I think I remember when that was formed. I'm pretty old, but um, yeah, it seemed to it seemed to be OK. I mean, they changed a lot of things, but um, yeah, so the FBI is a good one. And and I don't uh, I wouldn't argue that there isn't anything. There's nothing the FBI does that's useful. I, there probably is a few things here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I you know, my view is that uh, anybody that's working for the FBI right now, they should jump at the chance to get away from D.C. and work to the state. So maybe there's a few things the FBI is doing out in the states. Transfer that to the states. Just give it all to them. Say, here, these agents, all these resources, here's the equipment. Um, That's all yours. And just shut the whole thing down. That's following the Constitution. Um, The the NIH, I would throw in there. That's a fun one to talk about now. You know, does does, does the NIH? NIAID, the National Institute for Infectious Disease, that Fauci created his dream group and managed to dole out about a trillion dollars over his career. Um, like of all of that's unconstitutional. Like the, the, the federal government doesn't supposed to have anything to do with health care, let alone regulating drugs and, and, and deciding which drugs are allowed to go to market or, <clears throat> or by the way, uh, creating a virus out of bat coronaviruses um enhancing functions like none of that's constitutional like you that know, would have solved the problem if we just said not nah, the nih can't exist and Fauci- you know, and it's amazing how often when we think about government overspending our concern is inflation our concern is they're wasting my money we're not you know if, if it was just waste it wouldn't be so bad it's so much worse mm-hmm. than waste they're spending this money to harm you. Yeah, doing nothing would be better. Doing literally, four, literally just burning the money would be better. Yeah, literally just having the pockets of corrupt cronies and buddies and friends so they can buy fancy resorts and just waste our money would be better. They're actually spending be money in copious amounts in many cases to harm us, to take away our rights, to violate our constitutional rights. It would be a vast improvement if we just sent $4 trillion a year to D.C. and they didn't do anything except party. Right. And just be like, look. That would be great. <laughs> just be great. have a great time. Just buy houses for all your friends. Buy houses. Just, Don't start um, any new wars. Just spend it all yeah, on buy yourself. Buy houses for your friends. <laughs> Rather than, you know, say, trying to start a nuclear war with Russia. Right. Um, just buy houses for all your friends and family. 
that would be better. Yeah, I would I would go for that. And as people a, say, as oh, a, that'd be so corrupt, and it's like, yeah, but it would still be better. <laughs> what well, is corrupt? Yeah, if somebody says, well, that would be so corrupt, they'd be like, well, yeah, but it is corrupt. Like, what are you saying? Right. <laughs> you can't leave in a dream world. Dream world. You say like face. Here's what you're presented with. What would be better? Shut it down. Like whenever they vote to shut down the government, like yeah, they're shutting down the government. Cool. Hope they shut it down for six months. Works for me. After yep. six months, we'll check back in and see if there's anything they didn't do that we that we need. <laughs> I'd be a good experiment to run. I never yeah. mind when they when the budget fails and they shut down. All right, so that's internal. So the uh, <laughs> somebody somebody text comment giving money and weapons to Ukraine is good for the economy, more jobs. I, I assume they need a hashtag sarcasm. <laughs> um, it is jobs. Well, uh, jobs is the it, same thing as as benefit. So, it yeah. has the unfortunate problem of they might start a nuclear war and wipe the top two miles off the face of the earth. But other than that risk, yeah, there is some jobs. And hey, I worked for a defense contractor for a while. Um, yeah. But yeah. Hashtag you know, this sarcasm. Is why, this right, is one right, of the reasons right. why they, uh, the Constitution might not be perfect, but it makes so much more sense if we limited ourselves kept ourselves within bounds, knew mm. where the rules were and stopped f crossing the line all the time because really the greatest destructions, the greatest problems in the world are usually hap usually happen when somebody, maybe with good intentions, um, mm. crosses some line, compromises I, some boundary mm -hmm. or principle. I push it on this show. It is one of the purposes of this show. Um, mm -hmm. You know, besides calling out overreaching government, uh, the Constitution is pretty good. It could have been better, obviously. Um, the you know the Lysander Spooner argument: either it authorized what we have now, or it did nothing to prevent it. Uh, yeah, he's right. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> but it's because because we have to do that. You know, the people and the states have to stop it. The federal government's not going to limit itself. And we got two hundred fifty years of history to prove that. Um, I don't think it. Now, I spent two years working with the Convention of States about, you know, changing it. And I, then I realized that this isn't going to help either. So what I talk about on this show, and, you know, we've been going for six months now. Um, I think the Constitution is pretty good. And if you understand yeah. it from the founder's point of view and followed it, it wouldn't fix everything, but it would fix a lot of what's wrong with D.C. Um, yeah. And, and I'm totally in favor of, of limiting D.C. by whatever method possible. If people want to change the Constitution, I don't, I don't argue with them. I don't think it'll help all that much, but um, because it's abused anyway, they'll well, just... The main, like, you were, like you're saying, like the purpose of this show, the main thing is to get people to understand it a little better, to learn something about mm -hmm. it. Um, you know, I was just this week in Dover, New Hampshire, and one of the state reps um, came and they saw, saw the goldbacks. And she said to me, wait a second, states can't make gold money. And I said, well, yes, they can. Of course they can. She said, no, it's prohibited in the Constitution. Where does it say in the Constitution that a state can make gold money? And I said, Article 1, Section 10, Clause 1. And she just looked at me like, what? <laughs> you can quote me the, the thing? And I said, yeah. And I quote, no state shall make anything but gold and silver coin a tender and payment of debts. Yeah. And Very good. You knew it. I, I was about to read it. I had my little. Yeah, she was blown away. Yeah. she was blown away. And she's here. <clears throat> she is this in the state legislature, but she didn't understand what 
Del- powers a, were delegated and prohibited to the states. And one of them and, is and, they can make gold money. <laughs> and the, the, and she's in the New Hampshire state legislature where there's probably a hundred people that explain that to her. Right. <laughs> all those free straight people could tell her that one. They all know that. Yeah. And I thought <laughs> she was just a little bit like, oh, dang it. He knows. He knows. Yeah. Oops. Oopsie. <laughs> It's, it's actually the opposite. Um, I, a strict interpretation of that is they're not allowed to use fiat dollars, right? <laughs> right. No state um, shall use anything other than gold and silver. States Coin, have to use tender. gold or silver. Um, they have but then to they're use like, gold well, see, silver. but it never said the feds couldn't create a whole other thing that's not <clears> mentioned in the Constitution, delegate it to a private bank, and let them run amok. And, and you're like, just you, you're getting they're going down the path where they don't understand how the Constitution works. The number one thing, as we started, is that the Constitution lists what the federal government's allowed to do, not the other way around. Right. And nowhere and, and in there does it say you can give the power to international bankers to create fiat money and <laughs> hold your entire economy <clears throat> hostage with their own private um, for their own private benefit. <laughs> nowhere does it say that. And that's what we've doesn't done. Say anyway. that anyway. Let's see if there are any other comments on it before I go on. Somebody said um, the only reason for tax breaks, uh, like marriage, you're talking about, is mm-hmm. for with with children. Um, but th- but that's a question. Is like you can claim your asking, children even if you're single. For, you can claim your children. Yeah. Um, what does it mean to claim you're married? I mean, I'm married. If you're married in your heart, are you married? If well, you're religious and you're married you, in God's eyes, are you married? What's the IRS have to say about that? If you're claiming tax <clears throat> benefits of being married, as in married filing jointly, um, then, yeah, they want you to have a marriage license. But there's so many other ways um, to get similar benefits. And in some cases, actually in quite a few cases, you're actually better off unmarried. By oh, a lot for of tax people. reasons. For yeah. tax reasons. Yeah. It used to be a big marriage penalty. Um I remember when I first started working full time. Um, and There's was still married, a few. Of them. Uh, it was better to file uh, separate, um, but yeah. th- there were, that changed. I don't remember exactly when in the '90s, maybe that changed. And I used to do the taxes both ways and see, and it mm-hmm. changed it so it actually didn't matter. And then it was slightly better. Mostly, it didn't matter if you have similar income. You know, within a couple factor of two or three or something like that. Um, yeah, I think it only they, matters if one person has a lot of income and the other one has none, then then it matters. Well, um, and here's the, another thing, though. You can <clears throat> claim a dependent without being married to them. If somebody has if you have a lot of income and they have none, you oh, can claim them as a dependent anyway. Oh, they have to be in. They don't. Have, it doesn't matter what age they are. Doesn't matter what age they are. Doesn't. They don't have to be handicapped or something. They just have to receive more than fifty percent of their support. Of support. From you. So, and that's the same with children. So you don't need to be married to claim children on federal income tax. I don't know all the states. Mm -hmm. Um, I specifically moved to one that doesn't have income tax. So I don't have to think about that anymore. (laughs) When we get deep down in the weeds on this, um, there can be benefits to marriage uh, legally. There can be things that statutorily are conferred upon married couples that you you can't get by Mm -hmm. contract. There's not very many. Most of them you can do without it. Um, but there are a few. And when you run into those, all you've got to do is then get married if you need to legally. I mean, like you can get married according to your faith or according to your tradition or according to your 
community um, and then just put it off. And then if you do run into one of those situations, like actually under statute, there's a major benefit to you to be married. Then go ahead and go down to the justice of the peace then. Yeah, go and, and get married. If you find that there is a there is a mm -hmm. reason. Um, yeah, I've, I've lived with the, the woman I did marry. We lived together. We bought a house. We lived together for a long time. What, what happened with us was we got to the point where we were going to be... Um, what do they call it when you're married by default? Like you wake up one oh, day. Oh, common law marriage, maybe. Common law. Yeah, we were we were getting within like six months. We were going to be common law marrying. Like, well, I ain't doing this accidentally. That depends <laughs> so on we the should state. Just do it. Some states don't even have. We should just do it on so. purpose. And I think most of them have dropped it since then. Yeah. But yeah, we were nearing that point and we got married. But I still have to say, I mean, and this is, I, I don't want to get into personal stuff, but I did feel slightly different. Like it did. It it is a commitment. So even though the state's involved, and I hate that part of it, um, I would do the ceremony. I, I probably would do what you're talking again. If I did it again, I would do the ceremony with my friends and family, and you make the commitment. And I mm -hmm. think the way that I felt after I got married, it would happen again. And hell with the state. I don't need any. I don't need the government to sanction it or reject it or like I don't want anything. And then I would just live as a married person. Yeah, um, and you would be married, and you could claim that you were married, right? I would claim You're just that married, I was married. Under your customary. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's not immoral to lie on your tax return. Taxation is theft. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's not immoral if somebody, if a raper knocks on your door and says, "Is your daughter home?" And you say, "No, she's not home." Like that's right? that's, that's not, not an immoral, immoral lie. lie. <laughs> you know, if you tell if you if you're telling the Nazis that the, no, there's no Jews in my basement. No that's Jews not in my basement. Lie that you have to feel bad about. No, that's that's a you're you're under force, right? You're under uh, duress. Duress. Yeah. You're under force. So the Nazi is initiating force in that case. So the lie is not a moral question. Um, even though I, ha I have gotten into arguments with some some hardcore Christians, will push back about that. You can't lie. Um, but uh, you know, to me, that so you're, under, you're under you're under force. Absolute. <laughs> yes being too absolute the, the print you're actually compromising the principle so the principle that i would start with is that no one is allowed to initiate force can't initiate force on another person like that's where it starts so this idea of lying the question is are you initiating force by saying something that is not actually the truth you know in theory that's the purpose of constitutional law that's the that's the purpose of the supreme court when two principles or two laws or two rights come into conflict with each other Somebody has to say, okay, what supersedes here? What's the appropriate action when two things come in conflict? When when you look at you look at the principle and somebody does something and they bring it before the court, like and, and right. so really? to be looking, they should be looking at like if we switch to external. So I did want to at least touch on yeah. some external things because um like you said in the beginning, external is a little more interesting because there are uh, a, a bunch of things that the federal government was delegated a power to do related to external, like treaties and defense, conduct wars and all. But they weren't authorized to do all these adventures, like for rhetorical example, not to say I know what happened, but is the Pentagon authorized to blow up pipelines, say, for just an just <laughs> example? Because they think it'll help something they're in, they want to do. Like, no, right? 
they can't initiate well, force without a declaration of war. Right. And I think that's the thing that's really been hard is it, how long has it been? It was World War II or something. It was the last time we actually declared war. Ever since then, we just have an executive branch that's assuming that they can get away with it and they just continue to do stuff. And, and even an authorization of force type of um, type of bill from Congress doesn't make much sense because it should be war, specifically declared war. And those authorizations then, of course, are used to be so broad. I mean, this is where I really got mad at Bush and I'm still mad at Bush. Uh, the the second one uh, was that both of them, <laughs> both of them, but but the second Different one reasons. especially because that mm-hmm. authorization of force is so open ended, so open ended that that, that it, <clears throat> it it covers everything, including the extrajudicial killing of American citizens by drone yeah. strike, which Obama did, yeah, under that same which authorization. It's like, well, it's only one step step further before they start saying we're going to extrajudicially execute Americans on American soil. Like, wait a second, what, what difference does it make that it wasn't American soil? And well, they have it, to... it's, it's a very dangerous slippery slope. And slippery slope is usually a fallacy, right? It's a slippery slope fallacy that things have to get go mm-hmm. bad because you took one step that other steps will necessarily follow. This In this case, this is not a fallacy because I'm not talking about future slippery slopes. I'm talking about past ones. We already did one thing that already cascaded into a bunch of other crazy, crazy stuff all around the world that's already slipped way further down that slope than they than they even thought was possible when they started. And that's just in the past. That's not the future. I mean, who knows how much further we could slip. That might be a fallacy for me to argue that we're going to slip even further. Maybe Maybe we'll stop now. But we've got a lot of momentum behind us, and there's no sign of it slowing down, and it's already been a slippery slope. They're they're showing no signs. They're they're showing the opposite right now with with the you know basically it's a proxy war with Russia. Um, yeah, it already with, is with Ukraine. Like you, you know, you could say, well, are we at war with Russia? Well, Congress didn't declare war, but we've been at war with Russia as a proxy since at least 2014. That I know of, when the CIA orchestrated the coup and. The U.S. State Department handpicked the new president for Ukraine, and then they started talking about joining NATO. And like that war has well, been going on since at least and 2014. Even in Syria, Syria, even in, even in Syria, Lebanon. there was a, and and both sides <clears throat> are just toying with the edges of it. I mean, Putin also doesn't want to be an open, direct war with the United States. So they had things where they um, they got all the Russian soldiers to take off their insignia. Oh, I didn't know before they attacked the it? Americans. And so that's so they could say, oh, they're just Syrians or they're just people in Syria. Oh, oh, in Syria. Not, yeah. It's not it's not Russian soldiers fighting American soldiers. It's non-specified it's combatants <clears throat> fighting non-specified terror. They're terrorists, you know, they're so now the, it's in the war on terrorism, the war on whatever, you know, you can you can pick. Um and yeah, they got it. They got all drummed up that, you know, that brings up the C, you know, and the CIA is involved. In it. So the CIA kind of gets in there and gets started with it. And then the Pentagon comes in and yeah, using the, the um, authorization for use of force. Uh, it's, I, it's ludicrous. I, I try to laugh at it because it's so far off from what they intended, which is that yeah. the executive does not have the authority to decide when to go to war and when to stop going to war because they saw that in 500 years of English history with the kings. Like the kings had the power to decide when to go to war, who to go to war with, and when to end the war. And they also conducted the war 
and that's a conflict of interest and that doesn't work that's why they separated it like that's a good idea we mm -hmm. should stick to that one world war ii was the last legal war <clears throat> but the, the proxy would you call what we're doing right now a, a, a war i would i would in okay. fact um, i do you know, this is, we're definitely at war with Russia. The question is, is will it stay somewhat localized? Will it stay small scale? And I don't know why a declaration of war, which would have been the constitutional way to do it, I don't see why that would have necessarily necessitated that it be on a larger scale than what we're doing now. Right? We could, you, could, you could have Congress declare war, and have us limit that war to a couple of specific objectives or specific battlefield. I don't see why that necessarily is a slippery slope. Um, well, the problem is their their goal is regime change in Russia, uh, and Putin is not going <laughs> to tolerate not that. Not going to roll over. When Ukraine membership in NATO, <laughs> so they and and they want to keep missiles that are capable of firing nuclear missile launchers that are capable of firing nuclear weapons but loaded with anti-aircraft weapons within a few minutes flight time of Moscow. So, of course, they're nervous. They're nervous, yes. Of course the, they're nervous. I mean, it's an easy analogy to make would be uh, you could just pick Canada or something. Like what would happen oh, yeah. if Russia went into Ottawa, organized the KGB or what it's – I don't know what their secret service is called since the Soviet Union broke up, but they organized a coup, the State Department – from Moscow, handpicked a new president for Canada, gave him a couple billion dollars, and then Canada became super pro-Russia, and then Russia right. installed missile batteries capable of firing nuclear missiles that could hit D.C. all on the border. Like, I don't yeah. think D.C., I think we wouldn't tolerate that. I think we'd be pretty nervous, wouldn't we? Uh, yeah, and I'm not, believe me, I'm not justifying what Putin did. Um at least going past the Donbass region and Crimea. Um, but yeah, I think you have to look at what your enemy is saying. He's saying like, I don't want NATO line to move further East. Right. You can go all the right. way back and to Gorbachev. Know, when, when they agreed with Gorbachev, we would never move it further East than Berlin than where it was at the end of world war two. NATO would know, not expand to Russia. Now NATO's on Russia's border. Of course right. they're worried. Right. And, you know, this this brings up the larger principle. I'll have to bring these things back to the principle of the thing. And that is, are we going to be true to our our commitments? Are we trustworthy? Right. Yeah. And unfortunately, the United States has a long history of promising things that we do not follow through on. Think about treaty rights with Native Americans. Think about I mean, we're always sucker punching somebody, um, you know, and so. And, and so that's the part of the problem is, is that if we don't learn to be more trustworthy, of course, we're not going to be trusted, you know, and you can't trust him. I've, you know, who, who was it? I forget who was it that met with Gorbachev. I think it was Kennedy, like, like, or the secretary of state at the time, he promised not to move the NATO line verbally. And there was letters back and forth. Uh, and every president since then has done it, has moved it every single one. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, G we have that change, we have a constant change of power we... in this country, and that's <laughs> part of part of the issue too, right? Is that unless you make something a treaty, then the next administration has no motive whatsoever to honor the past administration's promises. And honestly, even then, we're pretty we're pretty loose with our treaties. 
G Man commented, I'm already nervous about Canada. <laughs> <laughs> Those scary Canadians. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're <laughs> with Trudeau, you know, Trudeau running, <laughs> really worry about. Um, yeah, so so they're, it, it's all unconstitutional. Like they, they, just to summarize, they made this rule in the Constitution that Congress had to declare war, and then the president really becomes commander in chief after Congress declares war. He can't decide to send troops, you know. And yet we have unless these. Unless we're invaded, unless we're invaded, we and then that's only wars, until you, you can know. assemble Congress. Right? Even well, in the I, days I, of Pearl Harbor, like what was transportation like then? It, it only took three days to declare war in Japan. Like right. it can happen pretty quick. <laughs> the danger, and of course, the danger of this never-ending war, the forever wars, some people call them, is that um, it basically creates a fascistic state. Right? It creates a police state. The police become more militarized. The military becomes more of a police force. Um, and it just never stops. Um, and if you don't stop and you reset and you say, okay, this is peacetime. And peacetime means that we have, we're going to respect our rights and we're going to demilitarize the police and we're not going to treat um, human beings as targets and enemies. We're going to treat them as fellow citizens. Um then then things just kind of continue down that path. And that's what really makes a fascistic state is a is using war as a tool to unite your people into a never ending cycle of um, of essentially increasing the power of the elite. Yeah, uh, it's Orwellian. We have always been at war with Russia, with Eurasia. <laughs> we kind of have been at war with them. Yeah, <laughs> they've been trying to stir that one back up. You know, the, the people that were really pissed when Russia broke up. I mean, they're still trying to they hope yeah. they can stir that one back up. You know, the now, government needs a boogeyman. That's how they get their yep. money and power. Now, you and I What's have discussed the, this before, but I want to bring up something interesting that I think the founding fathers had in mind when they were concerned about a police state, when they were concerned about standing armies. And they talked a lot about standing armies in the Federalist Papers and so forth, the Anti-Federalist Papers. And um, I believe that the Second Amendment was meant to remedy this. And yet, um, according to what they actually wrote about it, the way they interpreted it. But the Second Amendment has not been interpreted that way in a very long time. Um, so what is the Second Amendment, right? The Second Amendment says that um, militias being are, are necessary uh, for the maintenance of a free state. Um, and therefore, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So most notably missing is the word gun. The word gun does not appear in the Second Amendment. Well, ar arms is what they use, right? Which is right, anything arm. a man can carry or useth to strike out or another at another. Well, and and yet arms, legal I definition. would say, ha has generally had an even larger definition, which means weapons, weaponry, or, or mm -hmm. tools of war are arms. But yes, you're right. Very classically, it's something you could carry in your arms, right? Um, but what I, kind I, of weapons did they... I mean, war machines <clears> might have existed before that and so maybe they didn't think of those as arms um can and apply right <laughs> but i i use that arms definition because it's from the uh a legal dictionary dictionary from the 1700s um i pretty much quoted probably not exactly um it's i found that it's easier to argue with people that don't even think you should be allowed to have a semi-automatic <laughs> to to at least use like well this is what they meant at the time that's what arms is so like don't tell me about guns like they meant 
They the certainly American- meant anything a military officer could carry. Absolutely. Automatic, automatic weapons. Like, of course. But the thing and, that's and, and I remember is- this. I was going to bring this topic up, by the way. I was going to close with it because I thought <laughs> we would go on for a long time. Um, okay. And I, I just like I vividly remember the first time I met you <laughs> at the first time I talked to you at Porkfest and, and I actually went there to buy some goldbacks. Um, yep. But we, but I forget how the Second Amendment came up and you said you were an attorney uh, deeply interested in the Constitution. Mm-hmm. So I said, um, oh, well, do you consider uh, shoulder fired any tank missiles to be covered by the Second Amendment? And you were like, absolutely. Like, that's not a question or something like that. I'm like, oh, OK, now I know where we're starting from. And then we started <laughs> talking about standing armies. And I was like, wow, I've never actually heard this argument about the Second Amendment. That the Second Amendment is actually intended to not have standing armies. You don't need a standing army. Right. Um, and that's, if you remember, that's when I stopped you and I told you about rebel civics. Like, oh, I want to have you on and continue this. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go. Yeah, standing armies are unconstitutional. And we have a trillion dollar standing army right now, right. roughly. Yeah, um, I would argue trillions plural trillions you know what uh, trillion a year 900 billion i think roughly for next year yeah but that's <laughs> per year that adds up oh yeah yeah what i meant is per year yeah yeah, yeah. it's crazy oh, how up. expensive how much we spend on this and uh, defense spending in general um is just out of control mm. and and so the the u.s constitution does give the federal government the power to coordinate the efforts of the states but there used to be something called a militia, which was now called the National Guard. Um, again, they were trying to get away from the original model. The original model is that each state has its own militia. And then they tried to nationalize it. So they wanted to call it the National Guard. But even to today, the governors of individual states can mobilize their National Guard. Okay? Because what they are is they're state militias. And the founding fathers were really worried about this standing army business. They were like, well, we might need to coordinate uh, right now. Of course, when they made the constitution, they were um, right with the revolutionary war and all of that. They had just become keenly aware that we needed to coordinate our efforts. We needed to have not just the New Hampshire army and the Virginia army do their own thing, but we had to have, even though New Hampshire had their own regulars and Virginia had their own regulars, we had to make sure that they could coordinate their efforts. And so coordinating their efforts became the thing that the, um, the federal government's job was to do, was to say, okay, in time of war, it specifically says in time of war, um, they are to coordinate um, the common defense, is the term, the common defense. Um, and yet... Um, there was a lot of people really worried about standing armies. And this is how you get um, some of the rules that says, for example, that the military cannot be used as a domestic police force um, is still some of the, uh, you know, and that is uh, mostly honored. Uh, sort of, except they now use the National Guard for that. And I would argue right. the National Guard has become part of the military. Right. <clears throat> um, so these lines have gotten very, very blurred. But the, yeah. the original idea was, was that, you know, the same reason why we don't appreciate it when King George sends a bunch of, of military officers ostensibly into his own country, if he claims that we're part of his country, um, it, to, to harass and to oppress his own citizens. We don't like this. We don't want to do that. Um, we, don't, we don't want to recreate the same problem 
that we're fighting against. And so um, there's lots of talk about how standing armies um, are are absolutely anathema to a, a free state. Um, and and so they, the, the, this was the question, and this is the context I'm building up because of the way the way they talked about it in these letters um, was that how can, you cannot have a free state with while there are standing armies. And then when you know it, that's what the language that you see in this Second Amendment. So I'm going to read Second Amendment text again. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. We mostly focus on the second half. It's the first half that I'm really interested in here because, first of all, militias need to exist. They can be well regulated, and that they. But but what are they? They're necessary to secure the freedom of the state, a free state, right? And so mm -hmm. this constitutional debate about standing armies was really about um, how do we maintain our freedom? How do we how do we prevent um, how do we prevent this kind of tyranny? And so that if there was in times of peace, in peacetime, there must not be a standing army. Um, in other words, there cannot be a permanent military. There cannot be a U.S. Army or a U.S. Navy or a U.S. Air Force. And they can't just exist all the time. They have to not exist in times of peace. So what do we do? about a common defense? How do we make sure that we're safe? And the solution, I would argue, that the Founding Fathers had in mind was the Second Amendment, was their solution to standing armies. And so they said, well, I guess that means we'll have to have the local militias, the state militias. In other words, it's under state control of individual states. Um, we'll uh, and that's necessary for the freedom of those states. They can regulate that militia within their state. In other words, at a state law level. Um, and they in order to them. have a free, um, a free militia in each state, the people have to be able to have the arms. Who owns the weapons is basically uh, who owns the weapons and how are they used was the question they were trying to answer. And so they said, OK, we're not going to have a standing army of the federal at the federal level. We're going to have militias at the state level that are regulated by the states. And then we're also going to divide that power further amongst the people. So the federal government will have the power. So what they were trying to do is this division of powers, right? You've got, and you've got three parties that they had in mind. You have the federal government, the state government, and the people. And those three entities would each have a role to play. The federal government would coordinate the common defense by coordinating the state um, militias, which we regulated at the state law level, and, but the actual ownership of the weapons would belong to the people. Now, I, I realize things have gotten far more complicated since that time. Shoulder-mounted um, anti-tank uh, missiles, the Lance-type uh, systems uh, that you mentioned, notwithstanding, um, uh, things are way more complicated even than that. We do have nuclear weapons and things like that. Um, I don't know that the Founding Fathers would necessarily feel the same way about the people owning all arms, all weapons, uh, when you consider that uh, that is... Um, with, with mass destructive. With mass destruction, right? That's, that, uh, so I'm not, I'm not necessarily trying to make an argument that we have to go back entirely to exactly the constitutional model. 
but I think the constitutional model should be informing what we think about. All weapons should be owned by the people. Every weapon should be owned by a human, not an institution. And the states should be able to set the laws and regulations about how their own state militia, therefore their branch of the National Guard, every state, every governor should be the only actual commander in chief in peacetime of the actual state should have its own militaries. And the federal government's job should be to coordinate them in time of war. So the federal government is it's an administrative job, basically. Yeah. And then the president becomes commander in chief when war is declared. Right. And yeah, you can have these you can have high generals, you know, in the Department of War, which uh, has been uh, just the most brilliant rebranding in history. It's called, now called the Department of Defense instead of the Department of War. Um, but the Department of War could have its generals who would have, you know, and, and it, it can be well regulated. So the states probably should be participating in joint exercises where the federal government has common defense plans at all times, certainly. Mm -hmm. But the federal government shouldn't actually command or own the troops. That there'd be state state level. So for more complicated things, it would be in the state. Right. Well, and, and some of the so so some of the weapons there, I'm pulling this thread through. I like it. Like um as far as personally owned, so as the complicated weapons get bigger, um Anybody in South Florida wants to go in on an M1 Abrams tank that has parking, uh, count me in. Hit me no. up on PM. Nice. Um, but no. when you get up to, say, an Aegis destroyer, maybe we don't need them. Like one of the things you could think about nuclear weapons is, well, if we weren't doing all this stuff worldwide, we wouldn't need any nuclear weapons. Like Switzerland well, doesn't right. need nuclear weapons. I, uh, now, I'm a bit of a pacifist in my personal beliefs, and honestly, I think that the world would be a safer place if we unilaterally disarmed our nuclear weapons. We have enough other we types of weapons to be a deterrent, in my opinion. I think that nuclear weapons don't make us safer. I think they make everyone in greater danger. It, it puts us closer to the edge of uh, the U.S. and Russia creating mass destruction worldwide. Um, I think we can put a great deal of pressure on other nuclear powers to disarm and we'd have more moral authority to do so if we disarmed first. We still have a lot of conventional weaponry that could act as a very serious deterrent, even if we disarmed our nuclear arsenal. But, um, but yeah, here's the other thing, too, though, that uh, a lot of Second Amendment fans are not going to thank me for uh, in my theory on this, is that the state does have the power to make its militia well-regulated. Um, and so that could mean that an individual is not allowed to own a sidearm or a or a gun unless they uh, follow certain regulations. The, right? the Second so. Amendment proponents will push back on that because Second yeah. Amendment proponents are big government fans. They love big government. They want the federal government <laughs> to manage everything. Not always, but sometimes, um, yeah. Uh, so but I would if say, you but say, I would say the, you know, in Florida, you you know, you're talking about getting the Abrams tank, <clears throat> right? Um, Florida could decide how Abrams tanks are handled, where they are stored, um, things like that for its for its common defense. And and I would say mm -hmm. that the state government does have the authority by the Constitution, at least has the authority sure. to regulate where those tanks are and how they're used and who owns them, really, frankly, because um it needs to be for the um, the benefit of a free state. 
but so, uh, maybe and so a, if you're living in a state that's not very freedom-minded, they may regulate this in ways that uh, we wouldn't like. But the uh, I, I'm totally on board with that. I use that. I often get Second Amendment fans to agree, but not always. Um, I haven't been in Florida, which is a good one to argue because now uh, if we're talking with a Florida resident, uh, they start arguing about the Second Amendment and like, well, yeah, the 1934 Firearms Act is is unconstitutional. Like, sure. But you want to talk about Florida as far as whether you can say conceal carry without a permit. Um, we should be talking about the Florida Constitution. Like, don't even call D.C., call Tallahassee. Florida yeah. Constitution, Article 1, Section 8 says the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed except that the legislature may leg may uh, regulate the manner in which firearms are carried something like that i'm not quoting it exactly but cool. there's a there's an exception in there so people that want to argue for um permitless carry say well you need to change the florida constitution no you don't second amendment says you could carry right that's a typical response like actually the second amendment is not even relative to this congress right. doesn't and require a concealed carry permit in florida so we're talking about concealed carry and the Florida state constitution currently allows the legislature to require a permit. Now in Florida, it takes about a half mental, hour to get it. <laughs> this is part of the mental um, tyranny uh, that, that we, too many people fall into is that we look to the federal government too much. We just look to mm -hmm. them too much to solve our problems. We look to the federal government too much as our source of authority or our expectations. I've read the I've read the U.S. Constitution. We we promote that. We pass out pocket constitutions. How many people have a pocket state constitution? And yet, that's frankly where a lot of our rights should be deriving from. Um, and and yet, a lot of people. Uh, it's hard enough to get people to read the federal constitution. Everyone mm -hmm. should read their own state constitution. Your state has the power to give rights or these negative rights, right? It has the power to recognize or infringe on rights. Um, that the federal government hasn't even contemplated or the federal uh, federal constitution doesn't even mention. A lot of your rights are in your state constitution um, where the state says, yeah, the federal government delegated to the states certain powers, but we are going to constrain the state government in certain ways so that the state government can't infringe your rights. Um, that's really important. I, I, I agree. And I, I, I'm glad you brought that up. And I try to, to push that idea because you know, I just used to live in New Jersey. New Jersey is one of the few states that has no right to bear arms in its constitution. There's no right to keep and bear in arms hmm. in the state. And you, it's very hard to buy a gun. I tried when I was working there. I worked in Camden, which had the highest murder rate per capita in the U.S. for a small city. And, I, you know, it was in my 20s when I moved there and got a job. And I naively thought I should probably get a gun, you know, because I used to work late a lot. And I come out in Camden, downtown Camden, bad neighborhood. You know, I, I came out of work at like 10 o'clock one night and I was on my motorcycle and there's a guy about 30 feet from my bike pulls up in this old beat up car and he goes out in his trunk and he pulls out two handguns and he sticks them behind in his <laughs> pants, pulls his shirt down. He looks at me, he gives me a long look and then he turns around, he starts walking over the side of my building I'm like, all right, all right. <laughs> so I thought maybe I should get a gun. I don't know. I, I, I yeah. didn't look at him. I drove away. I didn't tell anybody nothing. I drove away. Um, but yeah, so I went to the police station. I found somebody that wanted to sell me one used and, um, I went to the handgun and I went to the police station naively thinking I could fill out some forms or something. And the, the cops kind of left. No, I didn't have the gun with me. I knew not oh, to get it. I knew I had to get paperwork. 
he just laughed at me like, you can't buy that. Like to buy a gun in New Jersey, to buy that, it was a pistol. To buy a pistol in New Jersey, you have to apply for a firearms license, which allows you to buy ammunition and to apply. Wait for that to happen. You may or may not get that, but that's not too hard to get. Taking a class helps. You get the firearm license. Then you select the gun that you want at a, at a dealer. You apply for that serial number model gun, that gun. Then the dealer has to lock it up. Then you apply for that has to go through this process. It could take months, like four months. is not unusual. Right. Um, and they often deny it. That's to buy it. <laughs> and then if they right. do allow it, then you can buy it and you cannot carry it. See, if you so get caught with that in the center console of your car, that's a five year mandatory, no discretion prison sentence. Yikes. If you had a, a pistol in your car, that's a legally owned pistol. That's New Jersey. So, so like, that's where I was living. Wow. Florida is like, you can be in a bar and a guy will casually mention he always carries his Glock. You know, Florida is a totally different scene. Um, well, and and it's not I, more I dangerous. That's, it's that's actually less dangerous than New Jersey. We, you know, we forget um, that that is, that's the mixed bag. Uh, when, when you're frustrated with the feds and you say, well, what about states' rights? What about the state constitution? What about that? Um, that's not a panacea. It doesn't necessarily fix all your problems. Right. But tyranny is tyranny, no matter what level it occurs. <laughs> but you can move. And but I you did. Can move, yeah. I live in Florida now. So, you know, back to your original point about the Second Amendment. The Second Amendment is a restriction on the federal government, even though it doesn't say mm. Congress shall make no law. That is what it's supposed to be. That's what it's meant. Reading the preamble to the, the Bill of Rights helps yeah. understand that. And this like is they where, should have this put where the Congress shall make no law there, too. too. Yeah, this is where the Supreme Court comes in with additional imp- interpretation as well, though, um, because the Supreme Court's <clears throat> going to step in <clears throat> and start saying things uh, like, well, the 14th Amendment means that we can adopt certain federal rights and apply them to the states. Uh, and that was sort of necessary because you had a bunch of states that were not willing to extend citizenship or the rights of citizenship or all the same rights. Um, to all of their citizens, uh, because we had, you know, our history of racism and slavery. And yeah, so the federal government was like, there's only one way to do this. We have to step in and we have to enforce it in a new way. And so there's this idea that certain, but maybe not all, but certain cases will say, yeah, the Bill of Rights applies to a state, whether the state likes it or not, through, through these other legal theories. But once again, it's not actually written in the text of the Constitution. Yeah, it's not it's not clear. I would have liked it if they made that that clear. So maybe that's a topic for another show. I didn't write this down as a question, but this whole incorporation doctrine thing that the Bill of Rights is incorporated onto the state. So I've always and since I'm in I favor understood of that, I am. You're I mean, in I favor of they, it. I think the founding fathers should have written it in expressly in the Constitution that anything that the federal government uh, cannot infringe on that has to do with rights. The states can't infringe on either. That should have been in the Bill of Rights anyway, even if it wasn't in the co- original uh, draft of the Constitution itself. Is I would have said in the Bill of Rights that uh, any rights that are held by the people, uh, I'm like I would have maybe expanded um, uh, Article Ten or something like that, where I would have said um, uh, any of these state, any of these things that the federal government can't do to people um, are. The, 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 these rights are held in the people and cannot be infringed by any level of government. 
You know? So you, you would have expanded the section in in uh, its Article Ten where where states are prohibited from certain things like making treaties and. Oh you, you yeah, no. I there? was thinking. I was thinking in the Bill of Rights. Um, well, the Bill Amendment. Okay, 10. that's messy. In Amendment Ten. Oh, Amendment Ten. In Amendment Ten, well, I probably would have had it say, "By the way, because these, because um, anything that is not delegated to the federal government is held by the states or the people." Um, that no, no, nothing that the federal government no. can't do to people that the states also cannot do to people. <laughs> Probably, but. Yeah, that would make the, t I'll have to think about that one. My first reaction is that would, that would ruin the 10th amendment, but I'll have to think about that one. I don't, I don't want to start because you've <laughs> thought about it, obviously. Religion under the 10th amendment, the state could have established a state religion and forced everybody in Virginia uh, to, you know, well, here's, here's a hilarious contradictory one. Everyone in Pennsylvania has to be Quaker. You know, um, you can't do that. If they did that, then they would not have any congressman and no one could be president because the Constitution says no religious tests of office shall ever be required for any office in the United States. Well, but the question is, is, is that the federal government's requirement or is that a state requirement? If you're you not requiring the states to not make a test. No, what I'm what I'm saying is that and this is off the top of my head, but I'm pretty sure this is correct, that if a state mandated that every person in that state be Quaker, then mm -hmm. they couldn't have any congressmen or senators. See, I would say because they, they made a religious test of office. So they would be saying there's a religious test of office to have an office under the United States, which say Senator, they couldn't do it. That'd be well, my, the federal, that'd be my the, I'm sticking uh, to it. <laughs> okay. Well, I would, I would say that this is exactly the pitfall is that the federal constitution, the federal constitution says there can be no test. But it doesn't say that the states can't make a test. It says the federal government can't make a test. Oh, okay. And that's, and that's the pitfall. We don't, want to, okay. we don't want to say the federal government can't do it because it's wrong and then have somebody else do it on behalf of the federal government, essentially. I would, okay, I, okay, I retract. I, I understand, yeah. And that's a problem. We don't want that. So, <laughs> so because the religious test of office would be the federal government can't make a religious test of office. Right. In 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 my view, the uh, everything that has to do with rights, like the Bill of Rights, is a reminder of rights that the federal government's not allowed to infringe on. There really aren't rights in the Constitution. Like that, that's not what it's about. They're not granted um, by it. Well, no, there's no rights granted by any Constitution. That's morally right. impossible. Rights pre-exist constitutions, right? But but the. Um, and not everybody understands that. Actually, I think most people don't understand it. Um, but anyway, it's the most important point for people my, to get out of any of this. Honestly. I think and, and all of my regular listeners understand that because they say it all the time. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> hopefully they understand it. Uh, anyway. Um, the Bill of Rights, I think, can only apply to the federal government. It's too messy. And secondly, as a practical matter, the Bill of Rights, I suspect, I think it's actually my opinion, would have never been ratified if that was the argument, because the states would never have ratified amendments that limited themselves. That wasn't what it was about. The whole reason for the Bill of Rights was because people were concerned that the open language in the, in the 1787 version of the Constitution would allow the federal government too much power and they wanted to limit it better. It was well, never about limiting states. 
is isn't that the the great quandary of government period no one's going to give you the education needed to overthrow them no one's going to give you the power to uh, overthrow their power uh, there's a lust for power that is normal in humankind and nobody wants to give you power over mm-hmm. them your boss even this is this is at every level of human interaction your boss at your job is not likely to put you in a position to take away his job. It's just the way that we think about it, right? Um, and yet mm. we have this we have this problem, you know, the founding fathers are looking at it saying, well, we don't want to believe we don't believe in the divine right of kings to have some kind of power that can't mm. be deposed. We need to be able to depose a tyrant and and start over and have some checks and balances, have some some way mm-hmm. to limit these powers of government so they don't get out of control. And that's, that's the danger, right? Uh, the people yeah. might have the rights in theory, but unless we show that we're the ones in charge, nobody ever wants to give you the power to take away their power. It's against human nature. Well, maybe the next show we have to do on anarcho-capitalism and argue why there should be no government at all. <laughs> right? <laughs> That'd be off the Constitution topic a little, but uh, you know that's, that's, a fun that's one. the thing that's hard for me. Like <laughs> ideologically speaking, um, I love having those arguments, and yet, ooh, <clears throat> not being a lawyer and, and and appreciating the rule of law in many aspects of life, it becomes really hard to figure out how to do that. Uh, maybe it's like Justice Story said, um, laws are made for bad men. Good men need no laws. Good men need no laws. So if you can split off a small enough group, but yeah, is it possible to arrange a society with 330 million people? That's that's a right. What do you do about the sociopaths? I don't what do know. What do you do about the bad men? That will not be governed except by force. Can, what can, can you do about so? Can society? It's an interesting topic, and my mm-hmm. yeah, I'm a, I'm still in the limited government camp. So my mm-hmm. my political arrangement of society, like I talk about the Constitution, but you know, and and I might people might say, well, I'm pretty much a small L libertarian sort of, but like that's the absolute max. Like I don't, and I don't f- never been part of the Libertarian Party. They're like big government fans, or have been until the Mises Caucus thing. <laughs> so you're um, saying the Libertarian but, Party isn't Libertarian enough for you? Oh, not even close. <laughs> like, but the, but the, well, because they're not Libertarian. Well, but they changed, and, and so I want to make this clear. I'm talking about the last probably ten years, but certainly the last five up until the Mises Caucus takeover in Reno. Um, and I'm not a member of the Mises Caucus, but that's the first time. I've actually seriously thought about joining the party. I've never been a member of any party ever in my life, and I'm not really ready to start at this point. But I like what they're doing. And, you know, you listen to Dave Smith and Tom Woods and, and Andrew McArdle and Dennis Pratt, um, who was a delegate. I did a show with Dennis Pratt. Uh, you know, he was one of the delegates there. Um, but the Libertarian Party of the last 10 years is, has not been Libertarian. Um, they're they're kind of big government fans. So I'm I'm on this like if if you want to say it's a spectrum mm-hmm. <laughs> from like libertarian to anarchist. And my entire life I've been moving towards anarchist. Like uh, libertarian right. is like the absolute maximum government I would ever want to live under. Right. To decide. That's and Mises. Much. I'm a big fan of Mises because he was all an economic theorist about uh, gold currency and about yeah. sound money. And so he's a big you know. 
the, that type of economics, Austrian, the Austrian school of economics is a big thing for me. So, so yeah, I, I'm really excited that yeah. we've got more people talking about that in the libertarian party, but at the same time, our biggest problem as libertarians even is once again, nobody wants to give you enough power to overthrow them, which is one of the reasons why there is a very concerted effort and a lot of laws in place and a lot of regulations in place to try to make sure that no third party will ever be viable. There's all kinds of um, institutional structural roadblocks to ever allowing a third party to come to power. And one of the main reasons for that is the libertarian party. If the libertarian party ever had enough people to win an election, it would ruin the fun because it would deprive them of power of the two major political parties. And so they'd much rather just juggle some power back and forth really gently Mm -hmm. um, and continue with their statist goals than they would be to allow a third party to come into power and actually deprive them of power. So it's the, it's the uniparty view, right? That the, and, and I look at the Republican and Democrat, the two mainstream parties as, as they're, basically on the same side they do quibble yeah. over exactly where to dole out the money that they steal and 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 you know yeah, which, sure. they don't even argue about which wars to fight anymore they at least used to do that just, right um, at least you used to have at least some <clears throat> some uh, peaceful democrats some dove democrats who were saying no we need to stop all the wars we even, can't, even be that's gone like pretty much know, yeah H- hillary was one of the biggest warmongers of the last half a dozen you know right she was the democratic candidate like that doesn't make sense mm-hmm. and now you got biden who was in charge of ukraine in 2014 as vp and yep. and helped orchestrate the coup um and now he's the president and he's a democrat like yeah what happened to the 1960s you know the kennedy democrats yeah <laughs> Kennedy would probably be a Republican now, right? <laughs> or he, yeah, he, he I don't know about that either, though. He'd, he'd be too much of a free market person to run he as would, a Republican. <laughs> he would be a local raving lunatic right now, is what I think yeah. he'd be. He'd, he'd be, be trying to get into the state house, and everybody and everybody'd be like, dude, you're <laughs> you're not in touch. You know, you're out of touch. And he wouldn't yeah. be able to get a state senate seat or something. Would have got to meet him. He probably would have been a port fest. <laughs> He'd, be yeah. in New Hampshire. <laughs> He'd be a free straighter, right? I don't, I don't know. Um, but See, yeah, this he is why moving win. to Florida isn't enough, man. Everybody should uh, move to New Hampshire. Then we'll get a majority of liberty-minded people and we'll have a free state. So. Yeah, I've I've heard. Yeah, I've heard that. <laughs> um, yeah, there's a couple issues with New Hampshire, but I like I do like New Hampshire. We spent well, a month. We spent a month there this year. And uh, uh, I might be traveling a lot, and I'm in New Hampshire right now, but I mean, I am a resident of Utah, so I haven't really sprung for it either yet. But I'm always yeah, amused when I come to New Hampshire, and they're all like, when are you moving to New Hampshire? When are you moving to New Hampshire, yeah. <laughs> the argument from Utah is not quite as strong as, say, from New Jersey or Massachusetts. Sure. You know? Yeah. Did you watch uh, Jeremy Coffrin's Stop Mass Integration Now video? Have to say uh, no. <laughs> we should probably play that if Beverly could find that. I'm, no, no, I don't <laughs> want to distract it. Um, he, anyway, Jeremy Kaufman is running for Senate. I, uh-huh. He's running for office in New Hampshire, and he's he's a free stater. He's also the guy who started Odyssey, competing with YouTube. So good guy. Um, he did a video oh. on mass immigration. It's stop mass immigration now. M A S S. And oh, he says, right. I went down to the border and I saw the huge immigration problem. All these people from Massachusetts are coming to coming over the border. Yeah, stop mass immigration. That's it's hilarious. Funny. It's a it's a like it's his campaign. <laughs> it's a campaign video. It's hilarious. Anyway, yeah. Um I like New Hampshire. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I do happen to live with somebody who only saw snow briefly once in her life and is not inclined to see it not again. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's a little bit of a problem, but summertime in New Hampshire is nice. So, yeah, you know, we spent a month there when we went to Porkfest. Uh, we actually did it as a two month trip with a camper. Uh, we spent a month mostly in New Hampshire in, in New England, but, um, mm-hmm. I like it. Well, in the fall foliage right now is lovely. Oh but. yeah. I would love to love to see it but it's it's too cold there already <laughs> <laughs> do you have to wear long pants there actually i was just in montana for three for three weeks so yeah we wore long pants and stuff it's, it's i i'm i'm used to wearing pants that's what i <laughs> i usually wear pants i um i, I don't even think about shorts <laughs> yeah no it's uh no our our um yeah south florida all right we're getting off topic but yeah Sorry. i would consider it yeah no, no, not not you brought you brought it up. <laughs> it's really the topic as far as the civics aspect of this is that there's 50 states and the states are experiments and New Hampshire's doing a great experiment right now. I'm 100 percent in favor. I'm not a free stater because I didn't move, but I gave two talks at Porkfest this year, you know. Um, and one of them was Secession 101. Like there's where I'm at. <laughs> so I gave a secession talk to New Hampshire. Mostly, you know, half the people there were New Hampshire people um, about why. And it was an intro. I did an intro to secession. It was um, uh, arguments for and against. I I did my best to do a balanced, although anybody watching could tell which side it was on. uh, But I presented (laughs) some of the arguments for and against and and basically argued why the arguments that it's legal and is can be a good idea. You know, my view on that, um, I'm all for flex it, tax it. Um, <laughs> you uh, know, this is uh, there, and there's great arguments you can make even with liberals. You know, the, the point is, is that association is voluntary. Mm-hmm. Relationships are voluntary and and any voluntary relationship, any consensual relationship, consent mm-hmm. can be withdrawn at any time. Yeah, that's the whole idea of the that's the basic libertarian philosophical position right and it's a, and it's a libertarian position um, primarily in the sexual arena but it's a mm-hmm. libertarian position that is fairly well accepted by all sides right now in in the world and if you simply make that analogy and say look this is about consent this is about consensual association mm-hmm. and consent can be withdrawn um, then you can make a libertarian argument that very few people would argue against it's it's the reason you, you know i don't try to argue against new jersey anymore um <laughs> that that if that's what the people in new jersey choose to do i don't live in new jersey um and 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 it is part of my position with the federal government including on bill of rights or on you know like that new york i've been arguing with people that new york case where they said where the supreme court overturned the new york gun law i'm like no that's a bad decision i disagree with that supreme court's wrong they have no authority there the second Mm -hmm. amendment is limits what congress can do but it doesn't say new york can't restrict the right to keep and bear arms i wouldn't argue anymore that you know new jersey constitution does not have a right to keep and bear arms so new jersey i couldn't carry a gun in new jersey and and for now, I stay out of New Jersey. I know that when I travel through New Jersey, what I have to do uh, and what I can and can't bring and, and what's required. I mean, I feel defenseless there, but 
I minimize my time there. That's what I do now. So I'm all for the 50 state experiment thing. So we'll have to get into that whole incorporation right. doctrine. Time is two o'clock Eastern. Oh, you're on Eastern. Yeah, time sorry now, that right? uh, the, we, the, we, we certainly awesome. went long. This, is a, this has been a this really great awesome. discussion. That's what, I've really appreciated it. <laughs> Yeah, I hope you'll come back and and do this more. I could I could sit down and in five minutes write down enough for another another hour show easy, um, because we we only touched on a couple things. So yeah, um, I'll let you get back to selling real money, Mark promoting real money in New Hampshire. Yep, <laughs> hold up a gold back. You you want to do a one minute gold back intro for people that didn't? Sure, for anybody is. who hasn't already caught it, gold backs, real gold money. Made out of 24 karat pure gold. Basically a very thin coin. The basic idea um, is fairly simple. Um, you don't have to worry about inflation if you have sound money. Uh, the Austrian School of Economics talks a lot about sound money. Um, I recommend you go to goldback.com and learn a few things about it. But our basic um, experiment, our project, is now active in four states. We just launched Wyoming a little while ago. Huge success there. We signed up more than 50 businesses already to accept payment in gold backs right at the cash register like any other kind of cash. Um, and we've been selling them like mad, um, the new Wyoming gold backs. We, we stockpiled them for months and months to be sure that at launch we'd be able to meet demand. And yet we um, are just about completely out um, and some of our distributors are completely out of some of those Wyoming goldbacks already. Um, but yeah, so four states, Nevada, Utah, and Wyoming, those are contiguous. And then New Hampshire, all the way over here on the east, um, on the east coast, all have um, this state local currency made out of gold. And yeah, I think that uh, this, 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 this speaks to the really important and larger point. Human rights are things that humans have. It's about what we can do. You can't wait around for the federal government to save you. You can't wait around for the Federal Reserve to decide to give you back your property rights. You have to just take direct action. And that's what we're doing. We're putting America back on the gold standard without the Fed because we don't need the Fed. The states have the right to, um, to make gold and silver legal tender. Um, so a bunch of states have already done so by their own state laws. And um, if you want to be back on the gold standard, you just don't have to wait for the Federal Reserve to do something. You can do something yourself. All you need to do is understand the problem. Um, and in solution for that problem, get some gold backs in your wallet and then spend them. And the moment you've spent a gold back, you're on the gold standard. It's a um, good idea. I, I love the idea. Oh, and, and by the way, everybody, there's a few in circulation here in Florida now. <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, and we had one comment I have to read it, it to close this out and I'll say goodbye. But uh, G-Man pointed out a problem with my not traveling to New Jersey. He said, if you stay out of New Jersey because of their gun laws, then that affects interstate commerce. Uh-oh. <laughs> I didn't think of that one. <laughs> Very good. We can't dude. have that. I guess you got to go to you got to go to New <laughs> Jersey with your guns and defy their laws. And he, it's good and for interstate good. commerce. <laughs> oh, and he was at Porkfest, by the way. I don't know if you met him. <laughs> um, that's, uh, that was great. So thanks. I think this is the longest Rebel Civics have done. 
Um, that was fascinating. Well, I hope people made it to the end then. <laughs> I sure had fun. So. Some people some people made it to the end. All right. So we're going to sign off for now. And uh, I'm going to see if I convince Benjamin to come back for another discussion. Uh, sure. Anytime. We got, we got a few things that uh, I want to pull through, thread through a little further. I definitely want to think through this thing about all weapons should be in the hands of people, not governments. That's right. an interesting one. That might be the title. And then only coordinated by the federal. Yeah. And I'd I'd be happy to get together with some people and upgrade my uh, single engine private license to to F 18. (laughs) That would be fun. (laughs) But I would need some help. You can handle the G forces. Fuel costs and stuff. Yeah. I would need some help. (laughs) Um, Okay. All right. Bye for now. Thanks for sticking around until the end. If you're new to Unsafe Space, check out our deep content library that includes discussions with everyone from James Lindsay to Brett Weinstein. And please consider helping to fund our work by visiting unsafespace.com donate. You can find us on a variety of social media platforms, and you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space Discord server which is open to financial supporters at any level. We hope to see you there. Warning, this is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. It would be better for your health if you forgot what you just heard. That should be easy for someone of your intelligence. The following co-conspirators are hereby ordered to watch CNN. Experts agree that 87,000 new tax collectors will make inflation feel like less of a problem. I think we can agree that the FBI's track record speaks for itself. If you think about it, only government-sanctioned experts should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Science, scientific, and scientifically are registered trademarks of the World Economic Forum. Unauthorized use is prohibited. Computer voice courtesy. Never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.